Hi, Hannah. Welcome to your second podcast interview with me. Thank you so much. Always my favourite one as well, because we just get to have loads of fun. So always been to you back twice. But compared oh, to the others, let's just hope none of those are listening. You're Ooh. my fave. Oh, thank you. Ooh, <laughs> I think I might giggle and blush now. <laughs> A quick hello and we're good to go. Welcome to the show, Hannah Thorpe. Perfect. I am always impressed when you sing my name as well, the fact that you can make Thorpe sound slightly cooler. Brilliant. I I actually (laughs) like the name Thorpe. Um, But it is very common, isn't it? Yeah. But you're not common, obviously. Oh, dear, that sounded really rude. It's it's fine, Jason. Let's start with an insult because then it can only get better, can't it? Right. <laughs> Jolly good. <laughs> Hannah Thorpe, one of the smartest, most delightful people I know in the entire industry, who is apparently a digital strategist, works at... Vicar. Thank you very much. I didn't want to get that one wrong and embarrass myself. <laughs> uh, and you are the head digital of marketing thing. Managing director, but close enough, yeah. Excuse me. Oh, dear no, me. And fine. Don't worry. It's, it's phenomenal. I mean, uh, I... I met you you were part found you were already managing director at the age of 23 or something like that yeah so I was managing director of an agency called white.net and we were lucky enough to be acquired by found um where I then spent two amazing years and then I recently started this new challenge over at Vakir um taking on a small team and just really getting to do some really fun digital consulting and digital strategies a lot of which is about being lazy, if I've understood correctly. I mean, yeah. Like, <laughs> I am an inherently lazy person. Um, so any shortcut I can find, I'm a big fan of. Mm. But also, let's be real. Like, we're a small agency. And if you're an agency, you're typically billing time. So the quicker and more efficient you can make your tasks, whether that's planning a strategy or doing a piece of work, like the more time you have to enjoy beers in the sun and the more money you'll make as an agency. So we are big on strategic laziness. Strategic laziness. Oh, that will that will come out in the clips that we make for this. <laughs> Please take note, Katrina. OK, uh, we're going to start with the brand search, which is what we always start with. And I was messing around with the Calico Pro platform that I keep building and building out these new functionalities. And I created a sandbox for, for finding knowledge graph IDs. And I had the great idea of creating a piece of text that describes the podcast with Jason Barnard and then putting every single person who's ever been on it, which is 180. And it came up with literally 100 knowledge graph IDs. Wow. uh, Including your own. So if we can show that first screen, we've got your knowledge graph ID. There you go. I wrote the text. Your name's in there. Perfect. You go across the right-hand side, and what we've done there is pulled from Google's NLP a list of the entities it's recognized. Mm -hmm. Hannah Thorpe is in there. And then the arrow goes off to the right, and we show the next screen. And we see that with just the knowledge graph ID, with no search term, google.com slash search, question mark, KGMID, G, bloody, bloody, thingamabob, 1L8, we get Hannah Thorpe, our Hannah Thorpe, the result with her name filled in without that being in the search query that we gave it, which means that you are in the knowledge graph in at least one of the verticals of the knowledge graph in probably the web version of the knowledge graph, the web vertical. Um, And I've been playing around finding KGIDs and wondering how we can port them 
move them across into the main knowledge graph ID, which is my current fun game to play. There you go. So you've got a knowledge graph ID. That's so cool. Then I started looking at Hannah Thorpe, which is, as I said, a very common name. And we've got world's strictest parents. Yeah. Um, and what is surprising is that was a BBC Three show of some girl, wo a woman from Liverpool who went to a Mormon family in Utah. Mm -hmm. And that's where you get Hannah Thorpe, Liverpool. That would be quite famous. And yet they don't appear at all. You really dominate your own brand set, even without the KGID. If it helps, I don't really dominate my own Twitter because I get DMs about that girl um, from World Strix's parent. So right. Okay, what do you reply? I tend to avoid them. I feel like it's probably not my demographic. Uh, right, okay. Okay, no, no, I, and, and that's a good piece of advice yeah. um, is don't get involved in conversations <laughs> you've got nothing to do with, even if people really want you to because they've made a mistake. And I'm trying to learn from that, and I will remember that from today onwards. Thank you very much. <laughs> now, all about being lazy. I did love, I read one of your articles about, what was it, intelligent laziness? Ooh, yeah, that sounds like something I'd write. <laughs> yep, okay. And I love the idea, as you said, if if you figure out a way to do something just as well without having to actually spend all the time that one imagines one might have to spend, you can shave time off here, but not lose the quality, you get to spend time in the sun. Exactly. And I think, like, for me, my biggest, like, one that I like to be lazy on is probably also the thing that's most time-consuming for agencies, which is, like, building strategies. Mm -hmm. So... I really like to use frameworks because I think they make the clients feel really comfortable because it's something that's like repeatable, but also it just makes everything really, really quick um, because you're repeating that same process every single time. And then something that previously might have taken three or four days is more like a half a day's work. Um, and I think those are my favorite sorts. Right. But you still build the three or four days. Uh, well, not officially. I think it depends on the value. Like we're trying to sell value with what our time is. So if the strategy changes your business, then you should be paying a rate that's three or four days. But if it's just fundamentally like giving you a way of signposting something that exists, you shouldn't really be paying a fortune for it. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what's really important. Um, and people hear the word strategy and they like panic and they go, oh, that's going to be the biggest deliverable, and it's going to be so much, and it has to have all these components. And, like, in an ideal world, yeah, but I also think we need to be really pragmatic. Um, and as digital marketers, that's probably something that's a bit lacking, um, that ability to be like, I know there's this mold, but I can break that and do something completely different and quicker, and we're going to get the same value for the client. Right. I mean, when you when you say a templated strategy, I mean, it sounds like you've got one strategy you apply it to everybody, um, but I'm sure that's not the case. No, definitely not. So <laughs> my, my favorite book uh, is called Blue Ocean Strategy, and that's about understanding that there's roughly two types of markets you're going to be in. And one oh. market could be a red ocean, which is generally where you're price competitive. So like if you're just selling like bog standard trainers – you're going to be sat in that red ocean where it's a bit of a race to the bottom. You need to be really, really visible on those commercial terms. Um, and you right. kind of just need to be there because you've got all these direct competitors. And then the other side is you can sit in a blue ocean where actually people don't know you exist because they maybe don't know your product or your service is out there. 
And so you have this whole education piece and your strategy has to include how you educate those customers that are completely unaware to the fact that they need your service. And then you bring them in as to why you're the best provider. And then you bring them in as a customer. And I think you frame it like that. And actually it's two strategies that apply to all of our clients. And then you can work out how you want to frame each bit of those strategies and make that bit the bit you tailor rather than the bigger thinking part. Right. Yeah. So I said one strategy and I wasn't very far off the mark because it's actually only two. But I, I do love that. And I'm now just thinking I'm actually with CaliCube in a blue ocean in a red shirt. Isn't mm-hmm. that a mix of the two? Or I think you might be sense? purple. Oh, no, I'm in a purple ocean. So it's a third strategy. Brilliant. The idea of basically you're saying, I mean, we're talking to April Dunford about kind of mature markets, markets where you you educate and kind of which one you're trying to be in. And you're just basically saying, if you're in a market where things are already understood, everyone's looking for the product, you're you're on the race to the bottom and drown, I would assume, in your red ocean. And in a blue ocean, it's all about communication and education, but that's incredibly costly in terms of content marketing. Yeah, and but I do think that most businesses sit somewhere in the middle. And so, yeah, basically, so like we work for a big law firm and they have obviously like a lawyer's a lawyer, aren't they? So (laughs) they're competing like Red Ocean style on a lot of the core law services. But then they do all these extra services where they're combining the specialists. So they'll take someone from their property specialism, combine them with their technology specialism and get them to work together. And other firms don't do that because they don't have as many practices. So those sorts of like, like convergence of two things is where they become their blue ocean and they educate why you'd go for that rather than just a single channel specialist. Sorry, just to clarify, they're educating people that you can have both specialities in the same company. And why, and why you would want to work with someone with both rather than someone with just the one. So they're almost creating their own market because they're grabbing people who are looking for one of the services and saying, actually, you'd get a better job if you had someone that had an awareness of both. So they're like pulling from that red market into the blue. And in doing that, they create somewhere where no one else can win because no one else is selling themselves like that. So it's a pond. Yeah. Right. OK. Create your own blue pond from the purple ocean. <laughs> That's the, the, the conclusion today. OK, wonderful. Now, do you basically take your blue and red strategies and just mix the bits that go together for the specific client. So you say, this is what the client needs. And some Mm -hmm. of them will be more ready purple and some of them will be more bluey purple. Yeah, exactly. And some of them, well, most clients, if they're new, you're going to start with the stuff that would traditionally fall into Red Ocean anyway, because if they've not really invested heavily in marketing before, you're going to want to start there. And then pulled down. And as you get to do those more exciting and interesting campaigns is when you can start to think about how you really differentiate and pull apart their USPs to make them sound like they're the only people in the market that you would go to. Right. Well, and my next question is, how do you organize that? Because, I mean, strategies are basically a series of tactics that build towards one ultimate goal. Mm-hmm. I just so, made that up. I thought that no, was that pretty was cool. great. Thank you. Ooh, 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 ooh. <laughs> So we really like strategic pillars. So all of our strategies, we break them down into like four or five core areas, um, depending on how big the client is and what they're really looking for. 
And then all of our tactics tie back to that pillar. And then all of those pillars have particular KPIs that we look at in that case. So like, yes, everyone wants to increase their organic traffic. That's really nice. But the pillars might be more specific about like, if you're actually getting that site fully crawled, if we're seeing rankings on particular areas go up and a bit more tailored in so you can see the success of those tactics. And then it saves you time because when you go and do a quarterly strategy review, you don't have to redo what the pillars are. You just redo what your tactics are for that quarter. And if a pillar isn't working, that's when you can make the assessment that that's the one that needs to change. You don't have to rip apart the whole thing and start again because you have something that's like building blocks. Right. Well, how many pillars have you got? Did you say that or did I miss it? So for a normal client, they'll have four or five. But I think across the agency... We also keep a list of every pillar we use and the tactics within it. So it's good inspiration for when we're talking to a new client. Can you can you give me a typical list of four or five pillars you will be using? Oh God, what, what a hard question. Um, so we might have like, um, let me pick a client off the top of my head. We might have something about like retention um, right. that talks about how we... Um, retain the customer, but then how we also resurface the content that they give us. So we have a client that gets loads of reviews. So for that retention pillar, we also talk about how we plug those reviews back into the site and make sure they get picked up by Google as well, but also get seen by the customers. We then would have a pillar for them that is, so they actually do property rental. And so we have a pillar that is, we call it core visibility, but what we mean is like actually rank for the um, specific like names of the properties and the specific commercial converting terms. And then we might have a pillar that is to do with thought leadership. So for them, it's all about how they really push their brand um, because they want to be known as being the experts in their specialist niche. And so for that, we'll look at all of the nice knowledge graph and exciting entity indicators um, and that kind of thing. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. I mean, I, I kind of look at it, and what I tend to find with clients is they turn up, when I had clients, obviously, is they would turn up and they would immediately say, I want to rank number one for hats. Mm-hmm. And that's the hardest conversation to have with them because it's so difficult to get people to stop thinking in terms of it's got a lot of search volume. I want to rank for that. I don't yeah. care about my existing customers. I don't care about the relevancy. I don't care about the fact that people aren't actually looking to buy hats. I just want to rank for hats because it makes me feel good. Yeah, we get that a lot. And so, (laughs) I mean, I'm always like, but why? Like, specifically, why do you think you want to rank for that? And I'm generally what you find, and that's what we do with someone's objectives, is we break them down into, like, your overall business objective, your digital objective, and then your channel objective. And so I'm okay if a client says, ranking number one for hats is my channel objective, but then I want to know the why for the digital and then the why for the business. And then I find that you can, as long as you're hitting the other two whys, they're not going to be too fussed that they don't rank first for what is a vanity term. Um, Or you split it in your pillars and you have that pillar about brand awareness or thought leadership. And you say that the vanity metric, like being number one for hats, is the KPI on that pillar because it's about a share of voice on something that's really highly searched. And then you talk about the other pillars needing to be a bit more commercially minded. So balance. Yeah, balance is always the thing. Right. And and I'm just going to say this is the reason you're the MD of 
Vakir and I'm not, is that you actually have a plan and you have a system. And presumably kind of this is something you brought through with you from previous work is you've built up a system saying, here are my seven or eight pillars. I pick the four or five mm -hmm. that have this client. And then I I was going to say bully, but that wasn't fair. Um, I encourage to rethink, persuade, encourage them to rethink from channel to digital to overall mm. business goals, which is brilliant. Yeah, and then, oh, thank you. And then I think as well, it's about like having that framework and that strategy in a place they see it every day. So we start every call with like, just to recap, this is your strategy and we have it on the screen as we're doing like a quick, hi, how are you? And it sounds ridiculous because we talk to our clients at least once a week, right. but having it front of mind. And then it means that when we then have our list of like tactically what we're doing that month, every tactic is labeled as to what bit of the pillar it's part of. Right. So the client is continually reminded that they signed off on this plan and that that's the outcome of each pillar and that that's why we're doing a tactic. So they're never like, why are you writing that blog post or why are you changing those page titles? They kind of understand the reasoning. And once you've got that, you can work a lot better as a team, which makes that whole encouraging them to rethink how they're viewing what their digital goals are becomes a lot easier. Right. And you would basically say, I mean, your, your pillars are always going to tie in the, 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 the Google to the digital to the business goals. And what yeah. I don't get or what I've never really understood with clients and businesses in general is that they have a, an idea of what their business wants to do. It might not be very clear. And then they go into digital and they think, oh, this is going to be really quick and easy. And then they go into Google and they say, oh, it's going to be tomorrow. How do you get them out of that kind of cycle? Because what I also find is when I try to do my equivalent of persuading them by moving up those three steps, which I'd never thought about before, and I do very badly and I will now do much better, is that they don't actually know what they're doing as a business. So in terms of goals, I always like to split anything a client says into what is a leading indicator and then what's a marketing indicator and what's a business indicator. So like if a client, so we've got a client who has a massive spider trap on their site and literally like three pages rank um, because it's oh, just wow. chaos what they have built. And so and we, just can you just explain what a spider trap is? I mean, I've guessed what it is, but I've never heard that phrase. before. Oh, oh God, maybe that was a bit old school. <laughs> um, so oh, you're older than I am. Brilliant. Maybe but <laughs> a spider trap is when basically Google's trying to crawl the site and it starts being able to create its own pages. So they're generally driven by messed up faceted navigations with lots of parameters. And it will start to create almost an infinite combination. Um, it happens if you can select multiple bits of faceted nav and then it reorders based on how the order you selected it and starts to just spiral and spiral. And when right. that happens, Google just absolutely loses its mind and it's just stuck in there, sees all these rubbish thin content pages. And then obviously it's going to think the site's rubbish quality because yep. it's not seen all the great stuff, especially if you are a business that pushes everyone to that search bit with the nice faceted nav and you push Google straight there all the time, you'll find that you really struggle to rank for anything else. Right. It just makes me think of Barry Adams, only because I saw him give a talk about it once 
and he talked about facet and navigation got really annoyed about <laughs> what you're now calling a spider trap and uh, it just stuck in my mind and, and it is infuriating that, yeah. that people kind of think hey it doesn't matter it, uh, I need to help Google help me and if I get Google lost in a spider trap it's just going to go home and give up I always just think of Google as like what I was like as a teenager. Like I was stroppy as hell. And if I didn't like something like full on tantrum and I'd be done with that for at least a year. Green so, beans. <laughs> literally like that's probably also what I'm like now still. I'm like, <laughs> I'm annoyed at that now. And um, I just think that if you think of Google like that, it sees a load of rubbish on your site. It gets annoyed it's not going to keep coming back and it's not going to see it when you bother to write the good content or when you bother to fix the problem. So for me, like the speed at which Google is going to pick up your recommendations and you're going to hit those targets really depends on how much you invested in like calming the moody teenager down from the beginning. And if you didn't, then you need to understand that those indicators aren't going to move for a few months. Well, maybe three months, maybe six, maybe longer, depending on how quickly you can get that health back up. Right. And, and how long does it take for the moody teenager to come around and stop sulking? I think it depends on how many Google updates there are recently. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, so it really just depends how big the problem is, how often it's been seen, um, what else is on your domain. Like, it's the number one question we get from clients, which is like, when are we going to get results and when is that going to be fixed? And I think they're very different. Like, you can fix almost any SEO issue, I think within a day or two, technically, but then it's when is the impact going to happen? And I think anyone that tells you an exact date is a liar, basically. Like, no one can guess it. And we always pitch against agencies who promise, like, within three months, your results will be here. And I'm like, you have no idea. Like, it's guesswork. So hang on, when you're pitching against agencies, you come in and say, we've got five pillars for you, lots of tactics, and we're going to be really lazy. Let's go. And we say, if you are doing a migration, we're not going to forecast for you because there's no way of telling how that's going to go. Your forecast would just be us putting some big numbers on a sheet of paper and it would make you feel really great and it would make you sign it off. But do I believe those? No. So we only really like, we'll even forecast if we're like 80% sure that it's going to happen or we'll give you some scenarios. And I think it probably loses us some pictures but it also means the clients we work with are really cool because they understand us and they trust that we're not going to lie to them and they're not going to lie to us. Right. But I, it just reminds me of business plans that you send to the bank and you just make up numbers and give it to the bank. <laughs> um, and it always struck me as being very strange because I got involved in a, with an accountant and we were creating business models. I said, well, if I change the number in the top left-hand corner in my Excel spreadsheet, iterates through the entire spreadsheet and the number at the end doubles he's going that's fine he's going it's not i'm just making it up so uh don't make it up yeah if you can't if you can't actually be reasonably confident you're going to hit it don't do it now the big question we've we've gone through the strategies and the pillars and the tactics and the and the business and how do you how do you be lazy about it because i think kind of probably the crux crux of all this is say well i've got all these things i know we need to do Mm-hmm. What are the processes you put in place that allow you to be, I was going to say lazy, but it saves time for yourself and probably for your client, I would imagine. Yeah, I think it's all about understanding like the why you're doing the work. So 
a lot of agencies put a lot of time into really big documents <sighs> and I can almost guarantee that the clients don't read them. Like we'll send a client like a 50 page audit and the clients now laugh at us because they're like, we don't want to read that. Like they don't have the time to sit and read it in one sitting. All of the points interlink anyway. And actually the best results we've got is from doing like our audits as a spreadsheet and it's a spreadsheet with related tabs that are all internally linked. And then it's a list of things for them to do. And then we put those into a recommendation tracker and we monitor what the client has and hasn't implemented versus what we're supposed to implement. And we keep that report going and they probably in total get about the same amount of time from us as they would if we had written the long document. But they get the time where it matters in the process and where it matters is us being on the phone to them every week saying, you're the only people that can implement that bit and you haven't done it. It's like, I'd rather they paid us for the accountability because an audit getting implemented is like worth double an audit that they implement half of. Mm. Um, and I think that that's where they want to be spending the money, not unlike how great your English was, as you eloquently described a spider trap. Like They just want to know the fix. <laughs> but you did just say <laughs> an audit that they implement half of is as valuable as one oh no hang on i've forgotten what it Other was around, yeah, it's, no, I, i've got lost I, I, was, I was trying to be incredibly <laughs> clever and it just didn't work out at all i went into a spider trap and <laughs> gave up and went home and started talking anyway um but yeah okay so but i still haven't found out how you saved me time i mean what i find is i waste a phenomenal amount of time doing exactly what you've just said which is telling the client you haven't done this and nothing's going to move if you haven't done mm -hmm. it um, and a lot of my time is spent trying to convince them to do it. Uh, however much the, the people say, oh, I want a to-do list. I don't want the audit. I want the to-do list. And you give them yeah. the to-do list and they still don't do it. Interesting. Be more aggressive. Oh, um, <laughs> no, so we, um, we like color code things as on track and off track. So if a client says, I'm going to implement that by July, then if they haven't started it in June, then we've already flagged it that it's off track and it's obviously not going to happen because we know their development sprints. Can, I, so, can I just say, you, you now make me think of the world's nastiest parents. <laughs> I mean, you're coming and telling off the, I mean, we're, we're now getting back into this child. It's basically, you haven't done it, you naughty person. And I think now. clients appreciate that because then when they don't hit the numbers for their bonuses, they're going to come to you as the agency and say, I missed out because we didn't hit performance. Well, you didn't hit performance because you didn't do the thing. So I think it's really important that there's an accountability early on, but also like workarounds. So a lot of um, people that I know in SEO maybe don't implement using Tag Manager all the time. Mm -hmm. And like you can implement basically everything in Tag Manager from hreflang, titles, your canonicals, like if you have to. Ideally, it's not best practice, but if you've got huge dev queues and you're not going to be able to touch the site for six months, the quickest thing is to make the compromise and do it that way because then you can get it done and you're not reliant on anyone. Uh, yeah, I think that's really important. There are a couple of points that you brought up there, one of which is Google Tag Manager might not be the best solution, but at least it gets things done when everything is getting stuck elsewhere. That compromise can be worth making. A part of your job is to, is to evaluate whether the compromise is worth it. Because a lot yeah. of people say Google Tag Manager never use it because it's rubbish and it's slow and um, it's clunky and whatever else it might be. 
Mm -hmm. And technically, Google might not always respect what you've put in Tag Manager because of Mm -hmm. the order that it's going to be served. But if you get seven out of 10 times and you didn't have to wait six months, I would personally take that as a win. Um, So I think it's about being practical. Yeah, incredibly pragmatic. And I think that's really important as SEOs is, and this is kind of, I'm, I'm as guilty as everybody else, is we are often snobs. You know, we can be a speed snob or a Google Tag Manager snob. So we can't use that because it's not proper. But then think, well, maybe in this circumstance we can move over that because there's something else more important, i.e. moving forward. And that brings me to the next point, which is hitting other people's targets, i.e. the person opposite you is not the owner of the business more often than not. It's somebody who has a job to do and has um, a responsibility to deliver results. Mm-hmm. And you've got to address them and their needs as an employee of the company. Yeah, I think it's actually, and annoyingly, my boss listens to your podcast on his drive to work. Oh, I'm very um, sorry. That probably ruins your day. So he's going to hear this. But it's actually the biggest thing I think that I've learned um, since working with Nick at Vakir is he always says it's our job to make our clients look like rock stars to their teams. Yeah. Like, they're the ones that have to work with us day in, day out. So show them how you can help and like just going the extra mile helping them get stuff done means they're going to look great to their boss who maybe is not very close to it and then that means they're always going to defend you and they're also always going to make things happen for you that's yeah no that's brilliant I'm, i couldn't agree more with nick from vakia who's listening <laughs> right now brilliant wonderful um he's my new friend or she's my he's new gonna- friend he and he's going to be so delighted I talked about him I never say anything nice to him so (laughs) brilliant and 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 that is the point is you just said something that I remember is they will defend you and somebody within the country who defends you actually keeps you on board and allows you the time that you need and that's crucial as an agency or somebody coming in trying to help with the SEO you need time and often you don't get it and if you get the person opposite you defending you and saying we have to keep them even though the results haven't yet come through, you're you're winning. And if they're not going to defend you, you're dead in the war. Yeah, and like if we're doing a presentation and it's going to have someone's boss there, we always say to them, do you want to see the deck beforehand? Like, let's make sure you don't feel like we're throwing you under the bus if we have to talk about something that isn't done. And also, they will then make sure that the points that are really good come across. So we have client calls where our Mm. like day-to-day will be like, hey, Hannah, you didn't tell him about this and be pointing out something good we've done that like didn't come up in the conversation. Um, and I think those sorts of relationships just make it so much easier to work together. A hundred percent. And that whole kind of thing of, of making sure that you do make the good points and you don't focus on the bad points. Um, I mean, in human relationships as well, saying something nice to somebody before saying what it is you've got to criticize them about makes an enormous difference. Somebody taught me that years and years ago, and I realized I was just being basically rude by saying the negative thing first, and it doesn't actually uh, impact what I'm trying to say or the message I'm getting across by saying something positive beforehand. I think it's actually... Probably the thing that I learned that I was awful at when I was an account manager. So when I started in SEO, I used to like bulldoze into my client meetings <laughs> and be like, you need to do these 10 things and they need to happen. And I was right. Like my SEO knowledge was good, but it didn't get done. And I just couldn't understand why the clients weren't listening to me. And I was like, oh, it's because I'm not making them feel like 
good before we talk about it. So they're almost shut off by like seeing scary lists of things that then they almost don't want to support you and they don't want to work together on getting it done. Mm. Um, and I think like because of that, that whole having that recommendation tracker, like we also own it if we're not going to deliver something on time. Like we're not perfect as an agency, like deadlines get missed and stuff gets moved and things get prioritized and we'll occasionally decide that the whole team deserves to go to the pub and we'll just shut the office for a few hours and it impacts deadlines. But like we will own that to clients and be like, this needs to move. I'm really sorry. Can we flex this? And they're flexible with us because they feel like we're on the same team. But it also means that they'll be honest about why they've not done something. They won't just be like, I'm busy. They'll be like, you know what? I couldn't get it done because I got stuck about this. Can you help me? Sorry if I sound mm. stupid. And everyone's just a bit more open with each other. It's all about human relationships. Um, and if you're on the same team, you don't think, oh, it hasn't actually come through to the results we were looking for. I need to justify myself. I need to defend myself. Um, and, and then you end up, and what I've found is you think, oh, I need to defend myself and end up criticizing the person opposite you and that just makes things a lot worse exactly and it's like you're working together to fix the problems because you all want to hit the same numbers like our team really passionately care about if the clients do well as businesses mm. like we work with a lot of smaller businesses as well who are maybe just starting up and just starting to grow and for them like every client win is massive so we're there celebrating alongside them as we get them leads that convert and i think that's sort of ideally Brilliant. um but that sort of like collaboration is what's really important, that you kind of share the same pain and share the same wins. Right. Oh, can I ask you a, a psychological, psychiatrist kind of a question? Because when, my, when Google does an update and there's any kind of problem, my clients say, oh, Google, how unfair. Oh, Google's being horrible, bloody blah, and so on and so on. I always feel fundamental guilty and bad about it, and I feel it's my responsibility and my fault. That oh, Google has changed its algorithm. Yeah, exactly. So basically, I'm mad as a hatter. But <laughs> I, I actually don't know how to express. It's not my fault. It's changing, and I'm doing my best to try and keep up and try, doing my best to help you to keep up with what Google's looking for. But Google changes the rules along the way sometimes. So we theorize with our clients so they feel involved in the decisions that we make. Um so we will show them like quite often normally once a quarter give someone like an industry update deck that actually shows them what's changing in their space that Google's doing and how does it impact um and then because we're having those conversations it actually means that they understand why we made the choices that we made so if you did get hit or impacted negatively or positively you know what it was that made us make that decision so a real life example, I guess, if you look at the update from the 10th of June or whenever that was, um, a lot of the sectors that got really heavily impacted are also the sectors that were most impacted by COVID in terms of changing consumer behavior. Right. Um, so what we actually, like as an agency, haven't got loads of data on it, but do think they're really linked. And so one of the conversations we're having with some of our travel clients is saying we're actually seeing more like of what would be traditionally like EAT and your money and your life stuff being related to travel. And mm. we think that's because now so many searches involving travel are also involving health terms. 
So our theory would be that because people are searching travel and COVID terms, it's triggering something to Google to make it feel like it's falling into those sort of areas a bit more and it's starting to regulate them a little bit more. And that's just a theory, but we've explained it to the clients. They're investing in doing some more authorship stuff. If it doesn't work, they know why we did it. Yeah. No, oh, brilliant. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm along with you all the way. I'm going to create some more content about COVID <laughs> stuff or something. Anyway, but the, what, what is interesting, and I like that kind of theory, is that COVID has moved a lot of things into that dangerous area for Google. And I think the, the, the your money or your life stuff is Google saying, I'm recommending this solution to my users. I'm putting my own reputation on the line. I'm going to be very careful about it. And the EAT is the, the solution to, that Google's found to all of this, is to say, yeah. I want to believe in you so that when I recommend you to my users, I feel confident that you're not going to let them down. Because if you let them down, I look like a fool. Exactly. And like we do quite a bit in private healthcare and for a few private hospitals. And for them, like we just tell them to put user safety first. So they'll be like, optimize this page. And I'm like, well, could you get a doctor to get involved? Because to me, optimizing that page means making sure you're giving super safe the right data and the right information out to consumers. And if you're doing that, then the odds are you should rank. Like, as long as you've nailed the technical health stuff, like your site's indexable and stuff, you should do okay as long as you're giving factually great information. Which is just very good advice, in general, I mean, but then we come back and we can maybe circle round and end with this is, you know, people say, well, John Mueller, when he says, you know, just serve your clients, serve your users, make sure you're giving a great experience to the user. Don't focus so much on what Google are looking for and focus on how you can serve your own audience. People say, well, that, that doesn't really mean anything. It's a bit of a platitude. It's a bit of an empty phrase. Is it really that empty? I just, I don't think it's empty. I think people don't know how to quantify it. And so because they can't quantify it, they panic and people think that they are serving their users without actually asking their users. Mm. Like if you're sat there going, I have the best page about such and such topic, but all of your users are bouncing after like a second on the site and not digesting the content because it didn't answer the question, you probably don't have the best advice and the best content. And I think... A lot of people almost use their own internal language and their own internal thoughts on something to say, well, I'm the best, but it's actually why. And I think we ask clients to think about what's the evidence, like what factually says that this piece is the right piece and what's the fact here that is telling you that you are delivering the best thing for users versus what a competitor does. And like we love getting into those discussions with our clients and then throwing their website and a competitor's website up on user testing and giving someone that knows nothing about their businesses and saying which site's more accurate and hearing what they say. And if you put two articles up and say, tell me which one you believe in more and why, the person quite often will be like, well, this one, because the formatting's better. And you're like, well, that's interesting. Maybe change how you've structured your text. Like, have you thought about that? And it just helps you kind of put some fact behind it. Oh, I do like that. That's a brilliant way to end it. Ask, ask your users and don't be surprised when they give slightly strange answers like, oh, I like the formatting. The font of the H1 pleased my eye. Thank you very much, Hannah. That was absolutely brilliant. We didn't talk much about being lazy, but we did talk about how to deal with clients and how to run an SEO strategy. Thank you very much. Next Perfect. week. Thank you.
we have Leraz Poston, who was supposed to come on in April, and we pushed it back. And we're going to be talking about connecting UX with SEO, which is a delightful follow-on from the conclusion of this one with Hannah. So thank you very much. See you, everybody, next week. Hannah, you get the outro song. <laughs> a quick goodbye to end the show. Thank you, Hannah Thorpe. That sounded that cool, so, didn't it? That was so good. Thanks, Jason. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Wonderful. Thanks a lot.